Hello and welcome to the Deathcast. I'm your host, best-selling author Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take another look at a true crime case. Before we get started this week, as always, I have the normal show notes. If you'd like to follow me on social media, just search for Ian Totten, author, or the Deathcast. You can find me on most social media sites. If you are interested in becoming a member of the Coffee Club, just go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com and click on the Donate button. Receive a shout-out weekly on the show for repeated donations. If you are interested in becoming a Patreon member, just go to tinyurl.com backslash DC Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, you can become a patron of this show. There is currently content up there in the Patreon feed, and I am working on redoing the West Memphis 3 case, which is something that has been repeatedly requested of me. And lastly, if you enjoy this show, please like and subscribe wherever it is that you get your favorite podcasts, leave a five-star review, and share the show on social media. Alright, now that all of that is out of the way, find yourself a nice comfy chair, get yourself something to drink, I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes, let's go into the crypt. The last few weeks we've been abroad in Canada and Japan, and this week we are back in the good old U.S. of A. This is actually the second time that I'm recording this week's episode, as about 20 minutes ago, just as I was finishing recording this episode, my computer unexpectedly decided to crash. So if you notice a difference in the sound this week, it's because I am recording in a different location. This week we're going to be looking at a series of murders that took place from the late 1970s up until the early 1990s that have been collectively termed the Bible Belt Stranglings and the Redhead Murders. Now, some of these cases have been linked together by law enforcement going so far back as 1985, while others were linked together by a high school sociology class whose teacher gave them the task at looking at a series of unsolved murders, and this class did it, and they came to the conclusion that most, if not all, of these crimes were committed by the same perpetrator. Whether or not this is true really depends upon how you look at the cases We'll get into what my thoughts on them are at the end. But we're going to start really at the beginning. We're going to start with what are considered the absolute no deniability about it cases. The ones that both law enforcement and this sociology class have stated emphatically are the result of a single killer. Before we move on into talking about the cases that are possibly identified as being linked to these other cases. The first of the known victims was discovered on September 16, 1984. Not 
too far from West Memphis, Arkansas, which is a place that we've gone to before, and if you'll recall, West Memphis is not a very nice town. There's a high rate of crime there, prostitution, as well as drug usage, and I have it on good authority from people who have been in that area for decades. It's really where the people from Memphis, Tennessee go when they want to, you know, participate in vices. Gambling is legal in West Memphis, and it's a haven and a hub for truck drivers. So this first victim was found, as I said, on September 16, 1984, along the side of Interstate 40, and they were found only wearing a sweater. And pretty quickly, this case went cold as authorities did not have a whole lot of information to go on. In June of 1985, a couple living in Florida saw something with a picture of this woman who at this point had been unidentified and recognized her as a woman who had been staying with them. So they contacted the West Memphis Police Department and informed them, hey, we think we know who this woman is. Her name was Lisa Nichols. She also went by the last name of Jarvis. So police took this information. They took fingerprints from the victim's body and they confirmed her identity as being that of Lisa Nichols. And... From that point on, the police unfortunately did everything they could in the press to paint Nichols in the worst light possible. Nichols was a known prostitute. Uh, it happens quite often. You know, women get into drugs. They need to feed their habits, so they take to working the streets. In the case of Nichols, it's suspected and there is evidence to support that she was actually working the truck stop circuit which is very common for prostitutes to do because they know that there are men there who are have money and are willing to spend that money in turn for sexual services Nichols was last seen leaving a truck stop in West Memphis, and it's believed that she was attempting to hitchhike out of the area. Again, though, because of her occupation, it could simply be that she, you know, had found a quote-unquote John and was going somewhere with them in order to facilitate the services that he was requesting. As I stated, the West Memphis police really went out of their way to paint this young woman in a unpleasant light, stating that she was had the highest arrest for prostitution in West Memphis, and that her rap sheet stretched from the ceiling to the floor and back again, implicating that really... 
it shouldn't surprise anybody that this fate had befallen her and that it was in fact her own fault for doing the things that we, she was doing that had led to her demise. Something that I personally find reprehensible, but it shows you the mindset of law enforcement as well as society as a whole that this was allowed to slide at that time. And unfortunately, you still see this type of mentality when it comes to prostitutes who live a very high-risk lifestyle. When they fall victim to someone, very often it's written off as, you know, they're almost like a victimless crime because they place themselves into the position where they can be preyed upon. And if you heard my coverage on the... Green River killings, you'll know that was very prevalent in those cases there as well. Uh, and it's an unfortunate aspect of true crime that law enforcement oftentimes does not take the murder of a prostitute seriously. As with many of the cases we're going to be covering today, Nichols' case very quickly went cold and really slipped from the public consciousness. Now, on January 1st of 1985, another body was found, this one on the southbound side of Interstate 75, not far from Jellicoe, Tennessee. This woman had been bound, Although, unfortunately, law enforcement has not given us much information as to what that means. It could mean that her hands and feet were tied, but more probably because of the evidence that has been leaked about this case, when they say she was bound, her body was found fully clothed, inside of a blanket which was wrapped up around her and then her body was tossed out. Now on this blanket police found seminal fluid although at the time they were unable to identify a suspect because DNA during this period of time wasn't even in its early stages of infancy. It was a non-existent entity as far as law enforcement was concerned. However, they did save the DNA that was found in the hopes that eventually they would be able to identify a suspect through that DNA. Now, it's been stated on numerous websites that the body was found in an advanced stage of decomposition. At the same time, they claim that she was killed an estimated 72 hours prior to being discovered. Given the time of year it was, January 1st of 1985, I find it highly suspect that she would be in that advanced stage of decomposition because even in Jellicoe, Tennessee, it does get cold in the winter. The victim was said to be Caucasian who had been killed by strangulation, although whether that was manual strangulation or with a ligature has not been released. It's also been said that she had shoulder-length curly red hair with an age between 17 and 25 years old. The victim was said to have freckles covering a good majority of her body, 
along with various scars, including a burn mark on one arm. At the time of her murder, the victim was 10 to 12 weeks pregnant and also had a partial denture in the upper part of her mouth. Police suspected that she was between 5 foot 1 and 5 foot 4 inches with a weight between 110 to 115 pounds. As with Lisa Nichols, this case too pretty quickly went cold. Although it would not remain that way. On September 6, 2018, the Shelby County Sheriff's Office announced that they had in fact been able to identify the victim through fingerprinting. She was identified as 22-year-old Tina Marie McKenney Farmer out of Indiana. Farmer was last seen in Indianapolis, Indiana, in the presence of a trucker said to be heading towards Kentucky. Should be noted that Prior to her murder, Farmer had given birth to at least one daughter. It should also be noted that, unfortunately, at the time of her disappearance, while some states did partake in a national database of missing and endangered people, the state of Indiana was not one of those that participated in this. I believe that has since been corrected. So it made identifying Farmer, who according to Namus, was able to be facially recognized much more difficult. Now a suspect was identified in this case, and we will be getting to him later on in this episode. On March 31st, 1985, the skeletalized remains of an unidentified female were found on the southbound side of Interstate 24 between mile markers 29 and 30 in Pleasant View, Chatham County, Tennessee. This is roughly three and a half hours from Jellicoe, Tennessee, just to give you an idea of the general geographic location that we're talking about. So if this is the same killer, they obviously have to have some mode of transportation in order to get to one place to the other and then back again, or however it might be working as the case may be. This particular victim is believed to have been 31 to 40 years old with a height between 5 foot and 5 foot 2 inches. It is known that the victim had red hair, although no weight has been given. It has also been stated that the victim was Caucasian. Unlike other victims, however, this victim was fully clothed, and I'm going to go over the list of clothing that was found on the victim at the time of the body's discovery. And again, as with other pictures, you can find them on my various social media accounts. 
The victim was found wearing a light pink shirt with pink flowers on it and a pink sweater with small blue spots. And when you look at pictures of this, it's not the type of sweater that many people think of when they think of a sweater. Most people think of a sweater that goes all the way down their body. This was more the type of sweater that covers their arms and just the upper part or breast area of the body and kind of buttons down in the front. I know there's a specific term for that type of sweater, but at the moment it is escaping me. The victim was also found to be wearing pants, although I couldn't find no descriptor of that, a black bra and a blue and yellow baseball type cap with a palm tree on it. Police suspect that this victim who was found by a passerby died between October 1984 and January of 1985. So she had been lying in state there for quite some time before her body was discovered. Again, unfortunately, as with many of these victims, police were unable to find a suspect or to even advance much as far as an identity or a reason for the homicide. On April 1st, 1985, the naked body of a woman was found inside of a White Admiral refrigerator alongside of Route 25 in Gray, Knox County, Kentucky. There were a number of distinguishing features with this body. She had a number of moles on her body, and her teeth were found to be stained near the upper incisors. They were stained yellow. There was also a number of scars on the body, including one on her abdomen that indicated that she had given birth to a child by a cesarean. The police performed an autopsy on the victim, and it was determined that her age was anywhere from 24 to 35 years old, with a height of between 4 feet 9 to 4 feet 11 inches. So we're not talking about an extremely tall woman. It was also found that the victim had red hair that was at least one foot in length. On the victim's body, a number of things were found. First and foremost, as I stated, the victim was found nude. Well, that's mostly true. They found a white sock on one foot and a another sock, which I presume to have been about calf length on the other. Now, this other sock was white with green and yellow striping on it, similar to the type that were popular in the 1970s and 1980s, although many of those were of the knee-high variety. She was also found to have a necklace with pendants on it. One of the pendants was a heart, while the other was a gold-colored eagle. Police really tried to find out who this woman was as the village of Gray has been described as a very rural, quiet, and sleepy place. And to give you an indication of that, 
It's been estimated that over 500 attended this unidentified woman's funeral. And in the course of trying to find out anything that they could about this woman, police stumbled upon the fact that it was suspected she may have been a woman who was heard to have been trying to solicit a ride via CB radio. Whether this is true or not, it does feed into the possible theory that this woman was the victim of a truck driver because if you think about CB radios, most people naturally associate them with trucks and truck drivers. Also found at the location where the body was discovered was a pair of boots, although these have not been definitively linked to this victim. Another note of interest concerns the refrigerator that she was found inside of. Some reports state that the words Superwoman were on the door of this refrigerator. Now, this may have been a sticker or it may have been written on there. We're really not certain as police have not released that piece of information to the best of my knowledge. And this could have been something that was already on the refrigerator, i.e. the murderer was driving along and saw this refrigerator sitting there, saw the words written on it, got a chuckle out of it, placed the victim inside of it. Or it could have been that this perpetrator put the woman inside of the refrigerator, put the sticker or the words on the door as sort of a dark inside joke for himself and then drop the refrigerator off at this spot. It's really unknown. Although I suspect that the perpetrator probably brought the refrigerator with them and disposed of her and the refrigerator at the same time. And I say this because I have not seen any indication stating that this refrigerator was known to have been in place at the crime scene prior to the discovery of this woman's body. As with a few of the other cases I've already discussed, this victim was eventually identified. On October 1st, 2018, the Knox County Sheriff's Office announced that they had been able to positively identify the woman. Now, as I understand it, the one of the women's daughters contacted them after coming across this Jane Doe, stating that she matches the physical description of my mother, but not only that, the jewelry that she was found to be wearing also matches the description of the jewelry my mother was said to have been wearing. The reason I put it like that is this daughter was six weeks old when her mother went missing. So she contacts the police, they do a DNA test, and it comes back with a positive, and they are able to identify this victim as 28-year-old S.B. Black Pilgrim. Now, S.B. is also known to have given birth to four other children prior to her disappearance, and S.B. was from 
Spindale, North Carolina, although the exact circumstances of her disappearance are, at least to me, unknown at this point. And again, this could be a case where law enforcement has some very specific data that they are holding back. We've talked about it in other episodes where the police will have information that is pertinent to the case that only themselves and the perpetrator would have access to. So oftentimes they will hold this information back because they're hoping that they can find a suspect and that this suspect will unwittingly give them access to this information that they've held back. That may very well be the case here with Espy. Unfortunately, we just don't know and will not know until such a time as her murder is solved. On April 3rd, 1985, the skeletonized partial remains of a body were found about 200 yards off of Big Wheel Gap Road, which is about four miles southwest of Jellicoe, Tennessee. And this particular area where this body was found was extremely rural. In fact, police later stated that it's highly unlikely that anyone would have just stumbled upon this area, which was near a strip mine. The area was known as a dumping ground for locals. Police postulated that the suspect either was a local or someone who was familiar enough with local geography that they knew this area was there and thus knew that it was sparsely traveled and that they would be able to dispose of a body there. Now, when I said that they found a partial body, what I mean by that is they found skeletal remains Although sources differ as to the amount of remains found. Some state that they found 28-29 bones, while others state that they found 32-33 to 33 bones. What's important, however, is that one of the bones that was discovered was a nearly intact human skull. This allowed law enforcement to create a facial reconstruction with law enforcement putting the victim's age range between 9 to 15 years old, which would put this particular victim well outside the age range of our prior two victims. Also found at the crime scene were a bracelet and a necklace which were made out of plastic buttons and you'll be able to see photographs of these as well as pictures and reconstructions of some of the victims on my various social media sites. Also found nearby was a pair of size 5 hiking boots and pieces of clothing. Police have stated that they do not know whether or not these articles belong to the victim, but there is a very high probability that they did in fact belong to them. Now, some similarities were found between this victim and that 
of Tina Farmers, as well as another victim who, again, we will be discussing later on in the episode. Clothing was found knotted in a very particular fashion around this victim's neck, much as it had been found with Tina Farmer and this other victim. Although, to the best of my knowledge, they did not find any DNA evidence linking the victim to a particular suspect, which is kind of par for the course when you consider the state that the body was in. That is not, however, to say that this victim remained unidentified. On August 30th, 2022, the body was identified using DNA as belonging to a 15-year-old girl by the name of Tracy Sue Walker of Lafayette, Indiana. Now, the way this came to be is that TBI, the Tennessee Bureau of Investigations, had contacted Ortham Laboratories, who are kind of known for helping out law enforcement in finding out the identities of unidentified victims. And through this, they were able to track down a number of relatives in Lafayette, Indiana. And upon questioning these individuals, they learned that they did indeed have a relative who vanished. This young girl was born in 1962 and had actually gone missing at some point in 1978. And this kind of gives you an idea of how different times were in the 1970s as opposed to how they are now, where if a child goes missing, it's immediately reported, and for the most part, law enforcement jumps all over it. Her mother reported her missing a number of times as having run away from home in the mid to late 1970s. It's unknown, really, whether or not law enforcement pursued these incidents when they occurred, although I suspect they probably did not simply because that's not how law enforcement operated back then. In any event, Tracy was last seen by a friend at the Tippin Canoe Mall in Lafayette at some point in 1978. Her mother put in a missing persons report and really that's as far as it went. The family had no further resolution as to what had taken place regarding Tracy until police were able to identify her remains. So there's the list of the quote-unquote absolute victims of this serial killer. We'll get into why I say quote-unquote shortly. The next group we're going to go through is those who are suspected of being victims. The first is Priscilla Ann Blevins. Now, Priscilla Ann Blevins was born March 29th, 1948. And she went missing on July 8th of 1975. 
when she was last seen by her roommate at the home they shared at the 1700 block of Tyvola Road in Charlotte, North Carolina. Her parents immediately began a search for their daughter as for her to disappear like this was extremely uncharacteristic. Unfortunately, there were very few leads in her case as no one came forward stating that they had seen her. On March 29, 1985, so just a little bit over 10 years after she had gone missing, the skeletal remains of a woman were found along Interstate 40, not far from Waynesville, North Carolina. No cause of death could be determined, and unfortunately, the remains were placed into the evidence room and pretty much forgotten about. Uh, until the early 2000s when Priscilla and Blevins' sister decided that she could not live with herself if she did not at least try to discover what had happened to her sister. So she got in touch with various law enforcement agencies trying to find out what had become of her sister, and they took DNA testing and put it inside of a national database. Unbeknownst to her, the agency that had possession of her sister's remains had also recently placed the remains into this national database in an effort to try and discover the woman's identity. And it was through this that the victim was identified as being 27-year-old Priscilla Ann Blevins. And police have not really given it a lot of information on this particular case. Some sources state that she had red hair from all of the pictures I have seen. It looks more blonde than anything else to me. The sister believes, though, that her sister Priscilla was the victim of a homicide and had been placed at the site where her remains were found ten years prior, meaning that she had been killed not long after her disappearance and just lain undiscovered alongside this highway. On March 25th, 1981, law enforcement in Missouri were informed that a body had been located on a low water crossing, basically a small bridge, on Highway MM near Dixon, Missouri. Now this case is quite a bit different than those that we have covered in that this victim did not have blonde hair, they did not have red hair, they in fact had black hair. Now, it was pretty quickly determined that this victim had died from a blunt force trauma to the side of the head, as well as strangulation as pantyhose were found around her neck. She was also found fully clothed except for her feet, which were bare. Police had an isotope test done on the body, and for those who don't know what that is, basically... They're able to tell what region someone is from based on 
the various minerals that are deposited in their body. Just an example, this isn't fact, but let's say somebody was from, you know, California, the northern part of it. They might have higher levels of zinc and chlorine in their body as opposed to somebody who's from, you know, Texas who might have higher levels of, you know, uranium and something else in their body. So by doing this, they can get an idea of where someone is from, but they can also rule out that they live in a certain area. With this particular victim, they were able to figure out that she had not been living in Missouri for a significant period of time. They put it around two to four years, no more than that. So they do all of this, and then the case goes cold until May 25th of 2021, where using DNA, the police were able to reveal the identity of the victim as being 32-year-old Karen K. Kippers. It does not appear, at least from information that I could gather online, that Karen had anything that we would consider being an at-risk lifestyle. It's more probable than not that she simply encountered the wrong person at the wrong time and that this perpetrator saw an opportunity to claim a victim and took it. On February 13, 1983, Two senior citizens were driving in their car in Littleton, West Virginia when they saw what at first appeared to be a naked mannequin lying upon the shoulder of the road. It was only upon closer inspection that they realized that this was not in fact a mannequin, but was the dead body of a woman. Police arrived and they pretty quickly determined that the victim had only been placed there recently as there was fresh snowfall on the ground but little to none on the body itself. They also determined that the victim had most likely been placed at the scene as they found footprints and tire tracks nearby to where the victim had been discovered. Something else that they found too is that it did not appear as though the victim had experienced a sexual assault. And that's something I want to talk about just for a moment. Oftentimes when someone is the victim of sexual assault, specifically vaginal or anal rape, there is tearing of that tissue in those areas through the violent actions of the perpetrator. That is not to say, however, that the victim may not have been involved in a sexual assault. Anyone who has ever had relations with someone else knows that sometimes when you are in an intimate situation with someone, they may decide that during it, hey, no, we've gone this far, I'm not going any further. That is completely normal, fine, and acceptable. That what happens, though, is that that isn't always enough for the other person, and sometimes that even though the 
one partner says, hey, I don't want to do this, their partner decides that they are going to whether they like it or not. At that point, even though they may have been involved in an sexual encounter, what they're involved in now becomes a sexual assault and very possibly could lead to a false identification of having not been involved with a sexual assault because there is not that tearing present which would be present if there was a violent assault perpetrated upon them. Now there were a number of distinguishing features with this victim and these are coming from the NAMIS database. The Toes were painted with orange nail polish while there were double piercings in both ears. There was a scar visible on the abdomen as well as a scar on the left ankle and the left finger. The victim had red or auburn hair and although some websites state that the victim was in a advanced stage of decomposition, something I find hard to believe when you take into account that it's suspected that the woman died no more than three days prior to her body being discovered. You can find images of this victim online and in fact I will be posting them on my social media if you want to go look for them. You just look for Ian Totten, author, or the death cast, and you will see pictures of this victim's face. Victim was five foot six in height with an age range between 30 and 45 years old and a weight of 135 pounds. Police also believe that the victim was not killed where her body was found, which is something that is quite common in homicide cases. There won't just be one single crime scene, there'll be multiple crime scenes, whether it's you know someone who's abducted, they're taken from a place, put inside of a vehicle, which then becomes a second crime scene, possibly driven somewhere where they are assaulted, and then finally murdered, and then their body disposed of. Each one of those is a crime scene, and it's believed that this victim was murdered at another crime scene. They do have some suspects in this particular case, however, one of which came out fairly quickly. A, a white male of stocky build who was roughly 5 foot 10, 185 to 200 pounds, was seen in the area near to where the victim's body had been discovered, driving a 1978 to 1982 tone brown Chevy pickup with a possible lighter colored camper shell on the back. Although police have not gone any further in looking for this individual, given the area that the body was found in, I suspect that there are many vehicles during this period of time, 1983, that fit that description. The other suspect is 
an individual who, at least according to some sources, is in prison currently serving life sentences. And because the police do not have the identity of this victim, they are not able to officially list this person as a suspect in this woman's death. The next victim was discovered on January 24th, 1985. Victim is described as five foot three inches tall, 110 pounds, and is estimated to have been found at the location where the body was discovered for mere hours with an age range between 20 and 35 years old. So, on January 24th, 1985, a truck driver was driving down Highway 78 in Olive Branch, Mississippi, when he spotted a body lying on the ground roughly 20 feet south of the pavement and 100 feet east of the Coldwater River Bridge. This information is coming from Namus. The hair color is described as red auburn, medium length, straight to slightly wavy, with an eye color of gray, although according to the coroner's report, the eye color is listed as brown. The fingernails on both hands were bitten very far back from the fingertips, and there were three piercings found in each one of the ears. There were a number of scars on the body, including one on the left forearm and multiple scars on the left hand. There was tattoos, one on the inside right ankle reading THC in block letters, and another tattoo on the inside left ankle, although that one was really indecipherable. Victim was described as wearing a peach-colored short-sleeve pullover type top with embroidery on the front and Gloria Vanderbilt jeans. Most of you may be familiar with that name, Gloria Vanderbilt. They're not very high-end jeans. In fact, they're sold in places like Kmart and Walmart, JCPenney, like that. So, more likely than not, we're looking for someone who came from either a middle class or lower down on the income spectrum. The other thing of note concerning this case is that law enforcement believes the woman may have been a heavy smoker, and at least from what I could see of the images available of her online, it appears as though she was involved in some kind of violent altercation, as the pictures appear to show a woman who has some pretty heavy bruising on her face, particularly on her right eye. And this next case is really what got me to looking into this as I was yammering with a friend of mine by the name of Aurelia about the person who has been put forth as the most likely suspect for this particular murder. And it's someone we have covered before, and I will get to him in just a moment. On April 14th, 1985, 
the body of a young white female aged between 14 to 20 years old was found in Greenville, Greene County, Tennessee on the southbound side of I-81 by a teenager who was out fishing. The body was found approximately 58 feet from an off-ramp. It was noted that the body had been severely beaten and possibly stabbed, although it was hard to determine exactly how severely she was beaten as the body was in an advanced state of decomposition, with investigators later stating that they believed the body to have been there three to six weeks prior to discovery. Body was found nude with no type of clothing nearby, and eventually it was determined that the victim had died from a severe blunt force trauma to the side of the head. Investigators were able to use isotope testing to confirm that the victim had not been born in the area and was most likely from the eastern to northeastern United States. And there the case went cold. Until 2017. I'm sure many of you may remember the case of Terry Rasmussen, who was tied to the Bear Brook Barrel Murders, as well as numerous other crimes across the United States. He's known as the Chameleon Killer. Well, when the second batch of bodies were found in Bear Brook State Park, relatives of a young woman by the name of Elizabeth Lamont contacted authorities stating that they believed that one of the victims might in fact be Elizabeth. So police got DNA and started looking into Elizabeth's background and what they found was pretty disturbing. Elizabeth went missing when she was 17 years old from Manchester, New Hampshire. At that point in time, Elizabeth was staying at a youth development facility in Manchester. And what a youth development facility is, is really, there's a couple different definitions. Some listed as a youth detention center for low-level youthful offenders, others as a place for at-risk teens. Now, the date of her actual disappearance is disputed. Some sources state that she vanished on April 6, 1984, others that she vanished on April 22, 1984. What cannot be disputed, however, is that she was given a day pass and she was planning on going to some place called Gill Stadium. However, Elizabeth never returned, and rather than do their due diligence and what the law prescribes, the individuals running this youth development center simply wrote her off. They didn't contact the police. They didn't do anything until the following year, when on her 18th birthday, 
they closed her case file. So what happens with Elizabeth is her family contacts them. Law enforcement looks at it. They start looking at Rasmussen and they realize, oh, hey, Rasmussen was living in this area at the period of time under the alias of Bob Evans. And on a number of court documents, he's listed as having either a girlfriend or a spouse by the name of Elizabeth. More so than that, this Elizabeth has never been identified. So the police start looking into the angle that Elizabeth may in fact be Elizabeth Evans, who was tied to Rasmussen, and that she may in fact be the victim of Rasmussen and be inside one of these barrels. However, they start running her fingerprints and DNA, and lo and behold, they discover that no, Elizabeth's body was actually found in Greenville, Tennessee, and that prior to having been murdered, she had been pregnant, although that she had lost this pregnancy prior to being murdered. There are still people who believe that Terry Rasmussen was most probably responsible for Elizabeth's murder. I'm not going to say they are wrong. I am, however, going to put forth another idea concerning Elizabeth's death. We have no evidence that's concrete linking Elizabeth to Terry Rasmussen other than where she was from and where we know he was living at that period of time, which was in New Hampshire. It is very possible, though, that Elizabeth being in this youth home may have become involved with someone on the staff at this youth home. And before you go screaming and sending me emails and leaving snide comments, hear me out for a moment. It has happened, it continues to happen, that these individuals working at these youth homes really aren't looked into very carefully. Oftentimes, predators will get jobs at these youth homes in order for them to be close to their sexual attraction, in this case, underage girls. It's very possible that Elizabeth, who from all accounts had kind of a rocky life, may have been, you know, singled out by one of these individuals who then convinced her that she should leave this youth home and that they will take care of her. And that either this individual, who we don't know who they are, as I have not seen any records indicating either the name of this youth home or of the individuals who worked there during the period of time that Elizabeth is known to have been present, began a relationship with her and decided that she needed to be removed. It could be that she got pregnant and this individual decided to kill her or that 
she realized that what they were doing was not only morally wrong but legally wrong and started to complain about wanting to go home and this individual decided that they could not risk her so therefore they eliminated her. I don't like to do a lot of speculation which is why I often don't cover many unsolved murders but that's the way I'm leaning as far as Elizabeth's crime is that there's a good, just as good a chance as her falling prey to Rasmussen as there is that somebody from this youth home became involved with her in a sexual manner and then eventually disposed of her. Alright, we are going to leave the Redhead Murders cases at this period of time. I wasn't planning on this being a two-parter. But since I'm at just about an hour, I am going to call it here, and we will pick up where we left off with the next episode. I want to thank you for listening, as always. And again, if you want to become part of the Coffee Club, just go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com and click on the Donate button. Don't forget to share the show on social media. Leave a five-star review. The Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Until next time, stay morbid.